morning have really understood the concept that if you can't get them to move, then you move. And, you know, we saw that video about the divergent thinking. So what happens if I come all the way over here and bring my lectern right over here? Suddenly all the people who are reorganizing their photos up in these here, whoops, they have to turn their computer around. And the people who are right up here might think and worry that I can spot them doing their emails. Now, I haven't said anything, but I've certainly made it more difficult for you to engage in divergent behavior. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And just think of what a different perspective it is that you, some of you have to turn away from the table to pay attention to me, and you'll eventually get tired of turning the way you are temporarily. Eventually, you'll turn your chair around because you get uncomfortable. And this is really our job as leaders, to lead people in changed behavior and changed thinking, not because we preach at them, but because we just make it difficult for them to continue in the patterns that they've been in so far. So I don't know if the sound will work. Is it too echoey up here for all of you? I'm happy to go back. See, I can, I can talk anywhere, anytime, anyhow, without any difficulty at all. But I'm going to backtrack here a little bit, and then you'll feel just a tad more, uh, more comfortable. So good morning, everyone. Morning. Did we survive that? Well, whenever I have a chance to, um, to share with, uh, with educators of any kind, I enjoy it very much because that's a lot of my background, my training, uh, my, my doctoral work was in the field of higher education. Uh, kind of the study of different systems of education, what they do, what they don't do. And the essence of that field of study, I can save you all kinds of money uh, and teach you to be a doctor. You must frown because people think you're thinking. You know, when you're like this, they think you're an airhead, right? <laughs> and so the more that you frown and knit your brows, the more educated you, you seem. And this is the entire field of higher education, or 98% of it, wrapped up in a very simple little declaration. It goes like this. Think of your, your school, your, your institute, your program, your discipleship initiative. Is that me fading out, or is that a battery, or what is that? Are you hearing me fade? But I'm okay. I mean, I just want to talk louder if I start fading, but I'm okay. All right. <laughs> now, it's okay for an audience to fade in and out. There's something wrong with that speaker because his voice is fading. See, I'm doing it again. Is that a battery or the microphone? You want me to grab the handheld? The handheld would be good. Well, it's not our sound uh, technician's fault. I can't even <laughs> take this off. Would you uh, be interactive with the person next to you for just a moment <laughs> and tell them that poor man is trapped with his uh, sound recording device that he can't, he can't even get it off. And I'm sure not going to take my belt off in front of all of you. Even with two helpers, we can't get it off. <laughs> Dear Jesus, what have they done? Because we need four. What have they done to me? Okay, well, it came off. Is it off? Yeah, the metal thing your belt, so that'll, that'll work.
leave it in place if you want. Okay, well, where was I? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, there's a rule in public speaking that if there is a disturbance or an occurrence, you as a speaker must make an instantaneous decision to address it completely, openly, so everybody knows that you know that that thing is going on, or to ignore it completely. And I was going to ignore the fading in, but I couldn't really ignore my, uh, my belt coming I'm really worried now. If my pants fall down, will somebody please alert me? <laughs> it does remind me. It has nothing to do with anything, but it does remind me of one of the funniest occurrences I've ever uh, had at a wedding. Uh, no kidding. True story. A very portly father, which is to say skinny legs and great girth, you know what I'm saying, who most likely wore suspenders to keep everything hoisted because just putting a belt around the underside of a belly is not going to, unless he wrapped it around his neck, would not keep it up. So he was one of these kind of uh, just, well, anyway. And he was giving his daughter away, who gives this woman to be married to this man. And, uh, you know, her mother and I do. And as he gave her away... Uh, he, I don't know, he stumbled or something, but he, he, he was bending down to, to pick up, and not only did he bend, but uh, that, his pants took that moment to absolutely uh, drop. You know, and you have to decide, as a, as a person performing the wedding, what are you going to do in such a, uh, in such a situation? So, <clears throat> pray, right? You just... <laughs> You just and hope that you can pray without busting out in, in laughing. Okay, well, when I'm speaking with educators, uh, I'm imagining that you're going to translate everything that I'm saying uh, through the filter of who and what God has made you and what your job is, what your assignment is. And different than speaking to a group of, let's say, congregants in a church where I have to be a little bit more careful, a little more measured, as it were, in, in what I'm saying, because I don't want to introduce more questions than I answer when I'm teaching. But when it comes to educators or graduate uh, training, I, of course, want to leave you with far more questions than I give you answers. So that's why I like to begin with a little bit of what my mindset is, what my bias is, and kind of where I'm coming from so that you can, you can decide how you're going to hit this. Is it a curveball? You know, what, what's coming your way? And I promise you that I'm going to get very, very, very more specific as we move along. But um, I want to begin by saying something that you all know, that, that um, we're in an era. It's very exciting because almost nobody knows what they're doing. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but there aren't very many people who are standing up saying, follow me and I'll take you into the new era. Uh, the most that anybody's really doing is trying to talk about that new era and how strange it is. But they're like people standing in front of an elementary school jump rope thing. And they just stand there doing this, telling you, you see the rhythms? You see the rhythms? But very few people have figured out how to jump into this new era and take with them all the things of the kingdom that we value. And I believe there's a huge disconnect right now between the what isn't quite yet, 
but we can't deny it's soon going to be. And I'm not sure if I've come to the top of the hill and I'm sliding down or if I'm still cresting at the hill. But the future is before me. And I think very little of what we have experienced prior to this point in time is preparing us well to take this thing called church and the kingdom of God into um, a, new, a new era. Okay. But what it also means is that all of the concepts and all of the vehicles in the kingdom, whether it's a, a notion like church or whether it's some kind of a program, even the definitions of our words, they are all up for definition. And... and um, so let me give you a couple of for instances. Sorry, I'm starting to get excited, and I always know that because my right leg begins to bend, and before long it will come off the ground, and I will be standing here like a stork periodically. So I'm going to just put that puppy right back down where, <laughs> where, where, it, where it belongs. Okay, now this is how I think, and my wife does say you do not think like a normal person, so I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I gave up long ago trying to be normal. Okay. And it's working really well for me. Well, I think anything you're trying to do should be first figured out by what it is you're trying to do. We call these outcomes. And it's remarkable to me for a people who are so bent on training and discipling and developing humans, so few of us have any idea whatsoever when our job is done. And the model of education in the church these days goes something like this. You don't yet know what you need to know. And if you come back next week, I'll tell you just a little bit more. Not that you'll know what you need to know, but you will be prepared to come back yet again. And we have this sort of, uh, you know, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but your teaching is not supposed to be. I mean, at some point he said, <laughs> okay, really, really, you know what you need to know. It's really to your advantage that I'm going to leave. And I'm going to leave you with what I've taught you. And I'm going to leave you with the Holy Spirit. And you will do way better if I'm out of the picture. And you learn to rely upon the little simple lessons that I've given you. And the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. And that combo is way more impactful than you continuing to learn from me. Which of us are prepared this Sunday to stand up and say that to our church? Well, okay, not this Sunday, but when is the end of your terminal program? Not your messages that are terminal. Okay, so I think we're supposed to have... How much time do I have, by the way? When do I finish? 11.30? Do you want to start praying now? God help us. Okay. Thank you for being very nice, but you have just introduced a huge measure of fear into my, my, my compatriots. Okay. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, well, where was I? Right. Outcomes. And I, in my mind, these days, as I'm trying to uh, catapult people into the future, as I'm trying to get myself into a new era 
where everything is a little shaky and a little rocky, what are the things that I want to do in the lives of another person? When is my job done? What's my target that I'm aiming at? And I'll tell you this, if you don't have a good target, your training program will grow indefinitely. And you'll be fooled into thinking, oh, I know what we need to do. We need to add a little more here. We probably need another course on that because we believe more than we admit that it's all about the training. We're like Jewish grandmas that just keep putting chicken noodle soup down people's throats telling them it'll take care of them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against training at all. But I was telling you, higher education, this gives you a degree. I hereby grant you a degree. It goes like this. Not that the degree is worth anything, but I figure if some people can sell it for $10 online, I can give it to you free. <laughs> Your training program, what goes in is the single biggest factor determining what comes out. The reason that Harvard graduates pretty bright seniors is because they only accept pretty bright freshmen. And it is a capital M-Y-T-H. To imagine that training alone can fundamentally alter the raw material that goes into it. Now, please don't hear me say don't be educated. Please don't hear me say give up what you're doing as an institute. I'm just saying that part of what we want to work on in people's lives, what we want to help them with, has to be more than more knowledge. And I know that you know that, but I just... I just Okay, so what are my three outcomes? And whether I'm discipling somebody individually, whether it's a course that I'm offering... Uh, whatever. And they're very simple. They work for pastors. They work for uh, assistant intern directors. They work, for, they work for everyone. And here they are. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I'm already having fun. So I, I hope this... My wife says I'm only intolerable when I'm in a really bad mood or a really good mood. Uh, so it's not good news for you uh, this morning. Okay. Outcomes. First... I want people more engaged in relationships and in serving. More relationship and more serving. I mean, I'm not going to take a long time to explain the why behind all of this, but, you know, we say it all the time, love is the bedrock and all ministry flows through relationships. But we never actually get people connected. So when I'm at an event like this, I mean, <laughs> I just sort of plop myself down, introduce myself, and break up everybody's party. And there's a reason for that because I want more people connected with one another. Uh, and also then in, in serving. All right, secondly... This was just going to be my two-minute introduction, and it's already gotten way longer than even I'm happy with. Uh, I want people better tooled. This is number two. Better tooled to go about doing good and healing all who are oppressed 
of the devil. That's what it says in Acts about Jesus. I just want them to go about doing good, just picking up paper and being kind to the waiter in the restaurant. Just doing good, helping people in the community, etc. And knowing how to heal those who are oppressed by the evil spirited. That our warfare, friends, let's not forget this, is not against flesh and blood. Not everything is a demon, but a lot more things are demonically inspired than the church, by and large, gives credit for. And when you try to apply a natural solution to a spiritual problem or a spiritual solution to a natural problem, you end up frustrated. I want my people to know the difference between what has the tang, the metallic wrongness of something demonically driven as opposed to, well, you know, it's just kind of the way the humans are. Okay. And thirdly, this is maybe the main goal that I have, and I offer it to you as the trip point at which someone truly becomes a leader in the body of Christ. I think we need to work on our dictionary definitions because we mistake uh, leaders for groupies. (laughs) In the rock world, I guess the roadies. All right. For me, a leader is this, someone who accepts responsibility for the spiritual development of these, and I can count them, people. Not someone who accepts responsibility for a program or a department in your church. I will say that again if I can. People ask me to repeat myself, good luck. All right, a leader is somebody who accepts the responsibility that I am going to change these three, four, five people's lives. Now, they make their own decisions, of course, but I'm not going to beg off by just offering to pray for them once in a while. I am going to follow them. I am going to shepherd them. I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to hang out with them. I'm going to challenge them. I'm going to encourage them because these are the people in my restaurant that sit at the tables that I have been assigned. And that's the language that Paul uses in Colossians. On my part, I do what I can to fill up what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And my earnest desire, I give everything so that I can present each person complete in Christ. And I think until a human says, okay, I will labor and strive to present Bill and John and George, and I forget his name right now, (laughs) no kidding, to present them complete in Christ. Whatever else I am, I am not a spiritual leader. So if I was really mean, but I'm not, if I was really mean, I would ask you, to write the names of the three, four people for whom you before God have accepted the responsibility to develop and to grow them. And if you're like most Christian leaders, you couldn't even write down three.
So I'm trying to get people to be responsible for other humans. And just take a peek at your church program for a moment. Take a peek at the kinds of roles and positions that we offer up to people as, you know, this could be ministry for you. And you'll rapidly discover they're almost always about some kind of program that involves logistics and meetings and uh, arrangements. And we almost never are holding people responsible for the role that they've had in other people's lives. And until you get people to that place where they accept responsibility, whatever you're pouring into them will not return any meaningful dividends. I'm sorry, let me say that again. Until you convince the people that you're training in your institute that their ultimate deal, the assignment, the calling, the thing, is they're going to identify a few people for whom they will then pour, or to whom they will then pour everything that they've received. All of your training is like pouring water into a colander. And I, I think you're wasting your time. Shall I tell you what I really think once in a while? <laughs> but it's so easy, really, to do this if you focus on it and make people responsible for one another. Okay. Do uh, you want to... You wanna, I've got all kinds of interactive things for you here in just a moment, and I kind of feel bad because Frank gave you. That was a really good five-minute breakdown of adult education. And I thought, mm, I wanted them to... Well, you, Anyway, we're going to get to some of that interactive stuff here in just a minute. But any, any, you understand what I'm driving at, what my outcomes are? Maybe one other thing that I would say, because this is all about discipleship, right? And, and I view, personally, discipleship as having two uh, halves, two, two aspects to it. Uh, the first is repairing the damage that has been done to people. It is, uh, it is medicinal. Discipleship involves a lot of mending. I always like the image of a nail that has been pounded into a board. When I was a kid, you know, we built our forts. And when you pull that nail out, it's usually bent. And if you don't have many nails to work with, you got to take that nail, put it on something, and tap it, tap it, tap it to try to straighten it out enough that you can use it again. Many of us fall into the trap of hoping for a new box of nails. And we think, oh, sweetness, what could I do with some straight nails for a change? And I personally believe that the Lord of the church makes us desperate enough for nails that we're even willing to take one that doesn't look so good and tap, 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 tap it so it's at least functional. If our training does not involve recovering and getting at the stuff that is breaking and distorting our friends, I believe our training will produce almost no fruit whatsoever. 
This is one reason why I really love the internship institute approach to things because you have a little more freedom in a way, a little more license than, say, a college does to get at some of those things. And I'm certainly not saying that Life and Kings and New Hope are not addressing those issues, but this is one where we can all do it uh, with each other. Okay. Oh, did I only give you one? Oh, yeah, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> if you saw my notes, you would know why. I don't know that I only gave you one. I, I, I actually took the, the time to write this, uh, this, this kind of thing out. Normally, I don't use notes, but I find it makes people more comfortable if they see that I have them. So this is my prop for you, and if you can make sense out of it, you're a better uh, person. Oh, yeah, there was another thing down here. So the first is repairing them, and the second is giving them understanding and know-how. Just to understand the things of the kingdom because they don't make sense. Or to know better how to do something. All right, so this is my first little interactive exercise. I want you to, to, to tell your new best friend who is sitting in the table either behind you or in front of you. All right, uh, look around, find a new best friend. And I want you to take, you get one minute each, all right, one minute each. And you're going to tell your new best friend, Oh, I wish I understood blank better. Or, I just wish I knew better how to fill in the blank. I wish I, I just understood this. Or, I wish I, I, I knew how to do that. Okay. You only get to pick one, sorry. Uh, you tell your new best friend what you really would like to understand, and they're going to tell you something back. Okay? I'm giving you one minute each, total of two minutes. On your mark, get set, go. Of ministry is do unto others as you would have done unto you. Right? So my suggestion would be, Whatever it was that you said to somebody, I wish I understood this better, I wish I knew how to do this better. If you were to make that your personal inquiry as you go to the Word of God, as you are reading other books or whatever it is that you do to learn, and you start honing in on the very thing that you wish you knew better, you will be amazed at how much the Lord will teach you and how capacitated you're going to be to pass what you learn on to another person. In my opinion, education in the church world, by and large, looks too much like this. Now, let's see, what do those people really need to know? And not enough like, huh, I'm an earnest follower of Christ. What do I wish I knew more? You hear the difference? One says that there is this uh, standardized, organized curriculum. And are there 46 or 47 cardinal doctrines of the church? We all hope nobody's going to ask us. And we're trying to go to that kind of static body of knowledge and pull out the parts that we think everybody else needs to know. And I know there are some basic building blocks. But I believe that people can feel the difference between instruction that is born out of your own passion and how this all works 
and when you're just giving them the, the stuff. Okay. Now, for this next exercise, there will be method to all this madness in a little bit, okay? Just, just bear with me. <laughs> I mean, what else are you going to do? Now I'm back here. You can do your emails, whatever, whatever you want to do. Knock yourself out. I mean, whatever. You know, when we host an event at our church, uh, um, we never give out the wireless passcode. Never. Break my heart. Get up early. Do your emails some other time. Your church paid for you to come here. Did they really pay you to come all this way to do church business? Anyway. Okay. Oh, did I say something? <laughs> oh, well, 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 well. Now, for this next exercise, I would love to have you think about this thing that we call church. Church. Because it's one, of the, it's one of the earliest concepts to begin fraying at the edges. And as we're trying to bring it into this new era, it is disintegrating before our very eyes. Now, I'm not spelling the doom of all, of all churches, but you know the numbers like I do. It's not really working. But I don't think God's like, well, I thought it would work. It's worked before. Actually, when we look at church, it's changed quite a bit through the years. So I want you to write down, if you can. It's okay to do it on your computer. I don't believe you're doing emails. I really like pen and paper, but whatever. I want you to write down something that you think is, is key to the essence of church. What's key to the essence of church? Oh, and by the way, nothing that happens on the platform. So let me steal from you to worship God and uh, to know and to make him known. Let me steal all those things from you. I'm talking about this. Well, I don't want to give you any, any words. Church. And if you lose everything else. What's an essence for this organizational grouping that we call church? I want you to write that down, and then you're going to share your illustrious thoughts with somebody who isn't yet your friend, and they will decide whether or not to become your friend based on your wisdom. So I want you to write it down. And the reason I want you to write it is because you will allow yourself all kinds of fuzzy thinking and vague if you aren't forced to actually write it and articulate it. So what's one essence of this thing that we call church that you want to be sure is preserved into the next era? All right, so as soon as you have written this down, now, I know you think you can remember it, but I don't want you to be a good Marxist when the, your friend talks to you. I don't want you to revise history. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant, too. Yeah, yeah. And I want you to share your thought. All right, so not the person you spoke to before. If you actually have to lift any part of your body off the chair to find a new best uh, friend, go ahead and do that. And I want you to share with them your essence of church, and they're going to share with you theirs.
Nobody that you kissed this morning qualifies as a new best friend. Okay, while you're, uh, you're, while you're finding your seats again, getting back together, I want to tell you a quick little story, and then I will offer you my, my thoughts about the future of church. And it, it all ties in with where we're headed the rest of the, the, rest of the morning. When I was uh, at UCLA, from my freshman year on, I, I just started Bible studies. And some of you have heard me describe these Bible studies. They were not successful. I'm glad that I was on the quarter system because I started a Bible study every quarter and not once in four years did the quarter end, ten weeks later, with anyone still in my Bible study. Uh, I forget, Jared, what the term is for people that just keep going. It, yeah, I just, I just kept trying. Failure after failure after failure. Oh, whatever. Here we go. Because I'm very excited about starting things, and the ending is whatever. So, And I also believed that they were very bad Bible studies. <laughs> I mean, as evidenced by the fact that nobody stuck around. But it's okay because I have a theory that everyone has at least two years of bad Bible study inside of them. <laughs> Some of us have four years of bad Bible study. And there is no way to learn that out. If you take in more, I'm going to switch over to a food analogy. If you keep feeding when you are plugged, it's not pretty. And when you finally are unplugged, it is messy and bad. So I'm of the persuasion, far better to get somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, started teaching a bunch of other people who don't realize how badly this person doesn't know what they're doing, and get your bad Bible study out before anyone realizes just how bad you are. Now, in the church, we don't mean to do this, but we have platformed so much. And you have to really be special. And do you mind if I just step away from the anointed lectern and tell you a thought that I, I had put in parentheses in my notes because I thought, I don't know if I can really say that. I really think it. But I don't know if I can say it. Am I far enough away that you will allow this to just be a parenthetical comment? All right. I'd like to write another book entitled Masters of Music and Excellence. Those who are leading the church astray. Now, if my wife was here, she would stand up right now saying, I am so embarrassed. But what he meant by that. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's really good at. Uh, <laughs> it, it, 
it ties in with my understanding about church. And I'm going to get to the excellence part later. Music masters. Are running the church. And they're dishing out more bad doctrine per song. And generating more confusion than you can shake a stick at. Now, what's he saying? Uh, both of my sons are worship leaders, and they're good worship leaders. I'm not, I don't have a beef against worship leaders. What I have a beef against is worship leaders that don't know doctrine well enough to realize that what they're singing is nonsense. Would you please stop writing songs about fire coming down? Which Bible text are you referring to when Nadab and Abihu got burnt to a crisp? I want to say, not in this place, don't let that fire come down. I don't actually sing it. I mean, I'll keep tapping and everything, but I don't sing it. Try a little punctuation for a change. And you will realize, I I can't punctuate this song. Right. Because there's hardly a complete thought anywhere in it. (laughs) Try this sometime. Try to say, you know, today we're not going to (gasps) sing. Are we not praising and worshiping? No, instead what we're going to do, I'm going to pass out a pen and paper to everyone in church. And for a half an hour, oh, I'm feeling, let's make it 40 minutes. You are going to write praises to Jesus and see if you want to come back to church next week. Sorry, if you're not a singer... The first 30 minutes of church are like, whatever. Unless a worship leader is really a worship leader who backs up all that she says or he says about how we invite the presence of God and the spirit moves by actually moving their lips in an original fashion. Not singing the same six songs that are sung everywhere I travel in the world. I'm like, if I hear it once more, not none of these songs, okay? It was all very wonderful. I'm going to take my airsick bag with me. Helping people to understand, you know, while we're singing, a beautiful thing begins happening. That your spirit becomes sensitized to the whisper of the Holy Spirit. You might be surprised the kinds of things that you hear or sense as we're singing. How about a little instruction about a prophetic word and word of wisdom? And You see what I'm saying? We've taken one-third of our church services 
and handed them over to people who may or may not have any immediate experience with an actual move of the Holy Spirit. And because they can do things in rhythm, it fools everybody into thinking that something happened. How on earth did I get off on that? Did I depart from the lectern? Did I go over there? Yeah, I did. Okay. Maybe I shouldn't have said that, huh? Should I? I just want you to think about it a little bit. Sorry? Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. Yes. Thank you. Did you all kind of hear that? Okay. Would you say it in the mic? Do you mind? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Shall I hand you this mic? I don't know. Maybe I should hold it. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> what, I was, what, I was, what I was saying is that um, it, is, uh, it is okay that you say what you say because in this context, in this culture, uh, it, it is okay to agree or disagree because as, as we are agreeing and disagreeing, either we uh, affirm what we believe or we correct what is not right. And, uh, and something that comes to my mind is that uh, um, considering the fact that there are many, uh, pe- there's many people from, many, from different places and from different states and from different ethnicities, backgrounds, whatever, there's going to be disagreements that there need to be filed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, you're free to disagree, that, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the bottom line. And I'm trying more than anything to poke your thinking. Not to totally change your mind, but just ask yourself, what are the outcomes you want from church? And if what I want from church is that people can really discern the voice of the Lord, there is no better opportunity for them to learn that than during a worship Because a sermon on hearing the voice of the Lord, I think, is not going to be quite as effective as little tidbits of instruction during a time when that spirit of worship is really uh, cranked up. But it's more than music, is my point. It's more than music. Okay. Well, here is my, uh, my thought for you. And then we're going to take a quick little break, and then I've got... I've got several other things I want us to do. My thought about church, the essence of church, if I were to boil it down to give me liberty and for you to have liberty to plant a different kind of church. I was talking with Bill Gross and yesterday, and it's kind of exciting when you think about all the different models for beginning these communities out there, and we don't really know what to call them. How do we record how many churches there are in Foursquare if the definition of church is, is, is shimmying a little bit? So, quick story. I was at UCLA. That's how I got off on this, my bad Bible study. Now, you might think that his, he's on a roll, man. His bad Bible studies have continued several decades later. But after the four years of bad, uh, God did something. And this little Bible study that we started in the summer months began to grow and grow and grow and grow. And there were dozens and scores 
and ultimately hundreds of young men and women who got cranked into ministry, who had their life changed. I don't know how many hundreds of people we prayed for to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I don't know how many prayer times we were in to cast out demons from people. It was Pentecost like nobody's business. And personally, I have never experienced that much life of the Spirit in all these years since then. Okay, so this, this group group, we met on Tuesday night. We called ourselves Tuesday night. Uh, when, do you, when do you guys meet? You know, we wanted to eliminate all the questions we could. So after some time, uh, this older guy came and, and visited. It was all students, right? And this older guy came. He was like 28, 29, something like that. He shows up and he walks in very knowledgeable. Kind of looks around a little bit and, and he just says out loud, Hey, nice church. And I was sitting on the ground with my back up against the wall and I said, Hey man, it's not a church, it's Bible study. He said, No, this is a... This is a, this is a church. And I got up and walked over to him and I said, hey, leave it alone, man. It's not a church. It's a Bible study. He said, no, this is a church. I am not a violent man. But, but that was one of the times that I lost my temper and I nearly decked the guy. I said, hey, it's not a church. It's a Bible study. And I real oh my goodness, my fist is clenched. I just about hit this man in the name of the Lord. <laughs> well, as I parceled it out later, I realized the reason that I didn't want it to be a church is because I wasn't qualified to lead a church. A Bible study, who can lead a Bible study? Anybody. That's the same answer I get everywhere in the world. Who can lead a church? Oh, well, now you're talking. My point is that we have platformed and raised so high the various positions that people can fill that most normal people don't want to have anything to do with it. Let's not take them to the high dive. Let's just stand them by the edge of the pool and, hey, this is fun, and knock them in. Splash around a little bit and then say, hey, man, you want to control the... I bet if we dumped in, it would even be better. Okay. I find in ministry, you have to fool people into more. <laughs> and preparing them for more, nothing prepares them for the high dive. Like a few lower platforms from which they have divin already, dived already. What's the... From which they have dove? No. From which they have doved. <laughs> My point is, in your preparation, don't forget engagement. If you are preparing them for something too distant or too far, I don't think your preparation will accomplish very much. Okay. My simple definition of church, then we're going to take a five-minute uh, break and come back for, I hope, some very interesting things. So for me, the essence of church is a network of relationships in which and through which people pass along lessons learned in the kingdom. 
with only occasional meetings slash training. I'll try to say that again. A network of relationships, the whole point of which people pass along lessons that they have learned in the kingdom with only occasional meetings slash training. Our society is telling us that the weekly church meeting is a doomed bird. If your concept is that everybody in this network should be coming every week. And if I was planting a church now, I'd get out of the head of the curve and somehow let it be known that it's just this once a month killer training meeting that I want you who've been in the church for more than three or four years to attend. And I'll just give you enough so that you can go back out and do what you do and then see in a month. Because I think our people need to be doing more ministry rather than receiving more ministry. If you don't change your meeting model, whatever you're saying with your lips, you're, they won't believe you. How often do we pull all of you together for this educational symposium? Once a year, right? Why don't we insist that you come every week? Well, okay, some of you live far away, but really isn't it because we basically trust you and that we're only really trying to add a little bit more, but for the most part, you're fine and you just need a little adjustment along the way. I think that's how we should think about people who've been in our church longer than three years. They don't need as much teaching as we have the need to teach. Okay, any thoughts about this? Any disagreements with this? Yes, sir. I'm, I'm, I think that your essential expression is very uh, innovative, creative, and worth uh, engaging. I think that it has to be directed appropriately, though. As I listen to your definition, Daniel, I'm hearing this being the definition of church leadership. I think that the people that I associate with in my heart for, the people that I'm directing toward wanting them to get what, whatever the Lord's given me, once a month is not enough connectivity. There's got to be more frequent connectivity. I don't see Jesus saying to his disciples, I'll see you in a month. And go do it, and I'll see you then. I think there. I, so I think that your idea is good. I think you need to be clearer about who. See, you, you call this the church. I would say it needs to be more defined, more clear that you're talking about church leadership, the people that you need to pour into, who are doing the relationship out there. And your your statement by you say send them out, do whatever you do, is to do whatever you do. That I think your statement could be meant to address. Because the do whatever you do, I think you're going to tell me they're going to go do whatever they do on a regular basis with people and engage them more than they're going to go engage their people more than once a month. Because because as you pour your life into people, once a month at a killer meeting isn't going to do it. The people I'm relating to, every week there's a new opportunity to speak into something. 
Yeah. And infrequent meetings does not capture it. Yeah. So I think you need to be clearer about what you're talking about here when you define church. Thank you. Thank you. So I said uh, disagreement to. Well, make yeah, my but big this statement. is this is very helpful because. Uh, what I would want to emphasize is that I'm talking about an occasion, that once a month thing for people who've been in the church longer than three years. Uh, now, we can call those leaders, and, I, and that's all right with me, but I believe that as pastors, we are aiming at much too small of a population. It's as though spiritual leaders are this very small subset of the congregation. And the church puts all its emphasis on two populations and miss the third. We do outreach programs for the unsaved because, boom, we want them to be saved. And we pour ourselves into leadership development things because we want them to be leaders. But I believe that virtually everyone in church can be turned into a dynamo ministry agent. And after three years of my training, this is where I am these days, haven't always thought this, but after three years of being with me every week, if you really can't make do with meeting with me only once a month, but you've got these other networks, so maybe five of them are getting together, There's, it's, it's, uh, it's, I'm not the center of everything. So I think in many ways we're saying well, exactly we're saying the, the same, same thing. thing. I'm, I'm yeah. disagreeing with you saying this is church and, and, and be only because... The interpretation of what you say, someone may walk away and say, oh, okay, our church is only going to meet once a month. No, that isn't what he said. Yeah, thank you. No, yeah, that's not that what I said. That isn't what you said because there, there's relationships in your life that are very very intense yeah. and very regular. Yeah. So what you're saying is you need to evaluate what is the relationship with you going to take for me. Yes. And with you, it's once a year. Yeah. I see you once a year here and I get a yeah. whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but... But with somebody else, I need to get in their face every week sure, and sure. let them know what's going on. And then, and then they move into a more of a, of, of a less need for intensity. And that's like the whole point. the hospital, you know. That's you, the whole point. You know? And I think you just need to clarify that. When you Thank say you. church, you yeah. could be misinterpreted to say that's everything. Oh, only once a month. No, because I would still have a every week Sunday meeting. I just wouldn't expect everybody to come to it every week. Okay. We're going the same way that Wednesday night services used to be the measure of how committed somebody is. That's nonsense. Uh, we finally gave up on those for the most part. No, okay, I like another, what you're saying. Uh, no, but I just I disagree with for the effect, but yeah. I like what you're saying. I just think we need to interpret what you're saying correctly. Yeah, thank you. All right, let's go with Noel. I'm not going to spend too much time because you get to talk to each other at the, at the break here, and I want to get on to some other. Noel, and then we'll come I, I over think, here to you. Okay? Um, those of us that have known you for a long time, um, understand that you utilize uh, provocativeness to make our brains think and stretch it. You're not going to say, and you don't say, and I think as leaders we all should take a leaf out of that, that what we're trying to do is stir up people thinking through and coming to different conclusions. So in a group of leaders like this, uh, it's a safe place because you're saying things to get our attention to think it through not necessarily this is what I'm asking you to do. That's my right. interpretation right. of what you do. Right. Well, and can you pass the mic to her over there? I'm starting with outcomes. Don't forget the first part of what I talked about. What is my drop-dead goal? What is my finish line? That I get people more engaged in relationship with each other, that they're involved more in serving, and that they know better how to go about doing good and healing all who are oppressed. So if I understand that my church should have some kind of built-in graduation date 
When do people become what you're trying to make them to be? And do you know how we've excused ourselves from that? We've separated the population into leaders and the rest of the cannon fodder. That's cheating. In my mind, conceptually, there should be those who, uh, you know, have been touched by God should become the repairers of devastations of many generations. And if I'm not turning these people who are coming to me into those who are ministering to other people as opposed to perpetually coming to me, there's something fundamentally wrong with my, my training. Okay, one last comment and then we'll yeah, move on. I- yes, I agree with your um, definition of church in, t- in terms of training, but I think church is much more than only training. And for instance, uh, in Port, we are Brazilians and we have Brazilian churches mm-hmm. and we train Brazilian pastors. Yeah. And in our cu- culture, we don't call it services. Uh-huh. We call it worship uh-huh. meetings. Uh-huh. So I think an essential part of the service is worship. Uh-huh. So I think that's why it's important to have these weekly meetings because of worship. We are getting together to worship God. That's the mm-hmm. one of the main functions of the service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Worship God. Now, training is is I agree. Yeah. It can it needs to have a purpose and a, a time frame. Okay, that's very helpful to me. And so I would modify my definition to say only occasional meetings. And by occasional, I mean that I don't expect that everyone is going to go to all of the meetings that I offer. But I want them to stay connected with me and with one another. So I will set up a whole bevy of opportunities for them to to do stuff. So we have people, say, who do an outreach ministry in the jail. And the time that they're doing that, they're not hanging out with the people who are, uh, you know, in the youth ministry. So we already do this. We bring everyone together and then we release them. That's what I'm talking about. But I'm just saying be careful that the weekly meeting that everyone is expected to go to, I just don't know in the future how well that's going to to play out. Different cultures it may And, uh, of course, all of this is for you to sift and sort. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. Oh, my goodness, the time is going. I hardly got started. Uh, I'd like to take just a five-minute break to kind of clear your brain because I want to come at the subject that we're supposed to be addressing uh, a little bit more particularly. Okay, so five minutes to uh, get coffee or to get rid of coffee. (laughs) Allow me to clarify... And thank you again for those of you that said what you did, because I think our ideas are best arrived at in community, where people can offer differing perspectives, and then we, I think, just come to a better definition. What I was talking about, the essence of church, I did not at all mean a schedule, a program of what you should do. What I meant is that in whatever you do, whatever works in your culture, for your age group, uh, in your setting, just make sure that it contains this that I call the essence of church, that it creates a network of relationships and that people feel the freedom to share with one another what God is speaking into their life. That's what I mean by lessons learned. That you pass along, man, I was praying for this guy the other day, and has this ever happened to you that they just sort of went blank on me, and I didn't really even know what I was dealing with. And then as I did this and that, oh, yeah. 
See, we tell our stories one to another, and as a result of our testimonies of what God has done to us, what God has done through us, other people get to learn a lot. And if church is fundamentally or exclusively one preacher person who's doing all of the teaching, it's just not adequate. It's not enough. Now, should there be, for my sake, my, my interest, of course I would want to be meeting every week. But I would maybe arrange the teachings in a way that I know the average person only comes every other week. So maybe the first two weeks of the month would be the same exact subject. And the second two weeks would be the same exact subject. No crime with repeating a message two weeks in a row because many of our churches do it two or three services in a row. Because we know it's a different population. And I have no trouble saying the same thing twice because I'm speaking to two groups of people. And at all of the meetings that I would have, of course I want to worship the Lord. Because as you'll see in just a little bit, I'm a real fan, a real advocate for people hearing the whisper of the Lord. I just want to be sure that my people are worshiping God all through the day. And that they're singing in the spirit and singing songs. But I want them to be singing songs that are teaching them, not confusing them. And I want them to sing songs that are simple. Because somebody like me with, with many songs, I, I can't remember how to sing it. And I want worship leaders who are not soloists. I want worshipers who cover a multitude of transgressions. And that would be me. Okay, I see that hand back there. Uh, we seem to have lost... Oh, here's the microphone. I'm, I'm going to get on to another subject, but uh, yeah, please help us. Daniel, thank you. As a kind of bivocational senior pastor and also an ELN director, I can hear what you're saying quite well. I'm wondering, though, if I'm not the senior pastor and I'm an ELN director or an institute director, how do I take the ball and run with what you're saying? Because I go home... I'm not the guy making those decisions or the lady making those decisions. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about some pretty deep stuff, and I'm wondering, how, how, do we, how do we run with this now? A little more practical. Okay, thank you. Oh, man, I should, I should take you with me <laughs> to segue in. Right, let me make this observation. Most of you in your ELN classes, I'm, this, I'm curious, do your classes begin with 20 minutes of worship? Generally, generally not, right? If you've only got an hour, hour and a half, I'm just saying, weigh the value. And really, if you sing for 15 of the 90 minutes that you have, when hopefully people are singing a lot of other times, have you really added something to the kingdom or have you simply fallen back on an established pattern that many of us fought the hymnal? You know, that was sung, these two hymns sung every week. And we got all this liberty to sing worship choruses. But there was advantage to teaching people the word of God to music. So just value, weigh things back and forth. That's all that I'm, that I'm saying. But now we are going to get way more uh, uh, practical for all of you. And to help me do that, I've got uh, about 30 copies of a book that I want to give one to e each, uh, each, what are you called? Institute, institution, 
ELN, whatever. What are you? What, what's the generic word that I use? Program? So one per church is the idea. So uh, please, if you would, come and get one per church, and then if I have any left over, one, one, if, if, one per college, one per whatever, because you're going to need these for the next little exercise that we're going to do. And I am told that the pages that we're going to be looking at are in your Dropbox. I must confess I have no idea what that is. So... If you know how to get to it, good for you. Good for you. Yeah, you can just rip the covers off that. And as you're taking the book, please, please remember to pray for me. Because when I go back to my office and tell them that I gave these books away, I'm going to encounter the wrath of my sweet volunteers. I'm out. Okay, sorry about that. Well, so I just want to make sure that, that, that each group of you has one. And uh, if I'm out of them and you give me your mailing address after the meeting's over, I'll send you one. Okay. Now, do you know how to get to your... No, this one is all chewed up. It's, yeah, no, that's, that's my cup. Do you all know how to get to your Dropbox? No. Uh, where's Christopher? Can anybody help me? Christopher, how do people get to their Dropbox? Christopher, is it in their Dropbox, those pages? It's dropping in right now? This is... I... Do we have any Xerox copies? All right. Well, okay. All right. It is what it is. It's dropping in even as we're... <laughs> oh, they're like fire. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we could sing, dropping from my Dropbox. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm so glad to be living out what uh, Jared and Ann were sharing with, uh, with us yesterday about flexibility and stuff. I, I, I would give myself a high mark for that right now. I'm feeling very flexible. Okay. Well, uh, I know that you're tempted to kind of look through this book. If you will just give me your attention for a little longer, I'm actually going to take you to certain pages, and then you'll be able to share among your, yourselves. Oh, uh, yeah, somebody asked me, why do I feel there's so much change going on, the paradigm of the, of the church world? Will you forgive me if I don't spend much time on that? It's just that the, the era is shifting. And I travel the world. And every place I go, one of the phenomenons that I observe is that mature, go-for-it men and women in God are bailing out of church services in unprecedented numbers. I'm not saying that new converts are not coming to church, but I'm saying that people who've walked with God for a long period of time are losing interest in the model of church that we are offering uh, to them. So I, I just feel an interest of the time. I'm not going to dwell on that too much, uh, too much longer. For how many of you is it kind of a new thought 
that the era is shifting and that church is undergoing a lot of rethinking and redefinition. Is that, is that news to us? It's very exciting because um, now we get to redefine what we mean by, by uh, church. But I want to now take us down to something very particular. The timeless truths of the kingdom are in much need of being re-spoken and redefined. We have an amazing opportunity faced with huge numbers of people who have no church background whatsoever that we can recast the images and the themes and the words of scripture in a way that's now very, very fresh and very, very non-religious. I believe that in some ways God is wiping the slate clean and saying to us the shelf life of the language that you've been using is just about up. But he's very eager to restock the shelves and by doing so can create, I think, in each of us our own personal kind of reformation, realization, excitement about, about new ways that God will talk to us about things that we've known for a long time. And the fact that it needs to be redefined, that our language has to uh, change a little bit, is because much Christian knowledge has kind of sifted up into what I call the cloud. And now, instead of people doing clear Bible study, instead of articulating exactly the images and the metaphors that are in the Word of God, we just default to very, very generic language which doesn't work for us, and I promise you, it's not working for a world that's already numb. And to give you an example of what I mean, I'm going to ask you to select a number between 1 and 4. This is just for you, a number between 1 and 4, not a card trick. And whatever that number is, don't cheat, stick with it. I'm going to give you four expressions that the scripture uses for a person who comes to a saving relationship and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I want you to say to a new neighbor, I want you to define the word that I'm going to give you and talk about how, what, what it means, just the word that I'm giving you. All right? Four different words. Your chances of getting a hard one are only one in four. So be of good cheer. Are you set? Number one, to be born again. Number two, to be saved. Number three, to be forgiven. Number four, to be redeemed. These are four radically different uh, metaphors. Can you articulate just yours? And don't blend it in with everything else. What does it mean? What's the implication? Being forgiven, being born again, being redeemed, and being saved. So whatever your number was, you're now going to think about it for a moment, and I want you to tell your friend what that means exactly and the implication of it. Okay? That should be easy. This is the most basic truth of the kingdom. So go ahead. Yeah, you can do it with any neighbor. We don't have a lot of time for this, but just 
somebody. All right, if you are if you are a fairly normal mature Christian in 21st century America, you probably were surprised at how your concept was a little fuzzy. And my belief is that our understanding in the kingdom has grown very vague and very blurry. And because of that, we don't understand a great deal of the the dynamic and power in the kingdom of God. And we don't know very well how to articulate it to anyone else. And when I'm forced to revisit these timeless truths and find afresh how the scripture shares them, it it, it brings a a sharpness, a clarity, a, a, a zip to the truths that I share, and I think that becomes profoundly more attractive to the unsaved community. The simplest way for you and for me to contextualize the gospel, we don't have to go to the extremes of redoing the structure of church. I don't know that we have to radically reform our training programs necessarily. The easiest way to change and update Kingdom stuff is to change my language. When we are teaching, the language we use should not be generic Christianity. And I'm going to, again, give you an example. But my first, when I, when I say the language that should be used, I'm going to give you five characteristics and we'll unpack them with an exercise in just a moment. The first is precise. That's this exercise that we just did. What is the difference between being redeemed and being born again? It's hugely meaningful in our culture. All right. So numbers two through five. Our language should be non-religious. I'm so grateful that I moved to Santa Cruz to plant a church. And when I went to do that, my pastor said he knew few people more suited for Santa Cruz than me. I knew he was trying to be kind, and I did my best not to take it as an insult, because Santa Cruz is the hole in the Bible Belt of America. It is studiously irreligious and wild and pagan and everything else. So whatever you're beginning to encounter in Wichita, trust me, that's passe. That was in the 50s in Santa Cruz. And the gospel still works in Santa Cruz, by the way. It has to be non-religious. And what I did, I forced myself for the first three years that I was pastoring to take every single Bible word and concept... And redefine it in new language with analogies or understandings. And once I took away from myself the liberty of using religious language, it's amazing the power that the gospel had to change people's lives. You don't have to be that clever. But I do think we have to be thoughtful about what we really believe. And if we cannot articulate it, As uh, David said to us last night, what hope do we have of passing anything on to another generation if we can't articulate it ourselves? Okay. 
Number two, your language should be pictorial. Oh, oh, three, sorry. Thank you. I I love these linear people. They've they've got the numbers down. (laughs) Whatever number I'm on. It should be pictorial, using analogies and metaphors. Why do you think Jesus spoke in parables all the time? Because kingdom stuff is very difficult for natural words to hang on. So he has to always say, well, the kingdom of heaven is like. If we're going to teach the Bible in a way that grabs a hold of people, we better be giving them images and, uh, and, uh, and so forth. Okay, pictorial. Number four, I think it has to be practical. It has to be something that our people can relate to themselves. And you, you heard again Frank mention that it has to connect with where they are. And most of our religious cliches are not practical. They are designed mostly for the speaker to convince everybody that I'm okay. But do they really help us when we're going through some difficult things? I don't know. And then lastly, I think truths of the kingdom are supposed to be conversational. Meaning that I present them in a very conversational manner. And that they should be things that people can easily talk about amongst themselves. I worry that teaching in the kingdom has become so uh, scripted and so segmented that normal people don't have any hope that they can do it. Conversational. Now, I'm not saying don't prepare, okay? Let's don't go there. But can people talk about what it was that I shared? Now, that brings me to a couple of examples that I want to use with this book, Enjoying Your Journey with God. And I don't want to make a commercial pitch here, but I'll just say that for whatever reason, it seems that it's gaining quite resurgence in our country and elsewhere in the world. This book is now translated into eight different languages, everything from Tamil in Sri Lanka to Bulgarian and a lot of others. It is designed as a discipleship stimulator. And it is intended to be a book that two or three people or 17 or 18 people can look at together and talk about. I have designed it in a way that it's, a, it's doctrinally almost ironclad and very safe. Some of you may know this famous psychology experiment where they took a group of children, put them in a grass field with a lot of uh, play equipment all around them, and the children just huddled together in the center of this group. But when they erected a chain-link fence all around the outside of the equipment, the kids played all over. And the lesson being that children do not feel safe unless there's some boundary that they don't have to worry that they're going to go beyond. Now, the people in your institute that you're trying to raise up to be these great leaders and teachers, can I tell you two things that they're afraid of? Number one, they won't know what to say when it comes to discipling. Do you know that's why they're in your class? Because they think that there is something right to say and they want to learn it. And it's also why education in the church world never satisfies. 
Because whenever you graduate from whatever level of schooling that you're in, that age-old fear that comes back and says, you don't really know what you're talking about, will grab a hold of you, and that will propel you to yet more advanced teaching and training in the hopes that that fear will go away. Well, I don't think it ever does. Because I'm not convinced that Jesus ever said, I want you to know everything that there is to know so that you never get stumped by anybody's questions and have all the cardinal doctrines of the church memorized in the back of your mind so that you can whip them out one, two, three, four, five. I think instead what he told everybody is that they should teach to their friends what it is that Jesus had taught them. So, to get people over their fear, I've created this tool... And the other fear that people have is that they're going to end up saying something wrong and that that will mess people up. So you won't know it from just reading this, but it's really ironclad. And you would have to be a bona fide cult leader to take anything in this book and turn it into some kind of a distortion because it is riddled with so much scripture. And I want to give you a feel for how this works that I wrote this in keeping with these principles that I've just uh, shared with you. So in your book, if you would go to page uh, 151, and is the stuff in the Dropbox now? Who's helping me? Is the stuff in the Dropbox? Well, okay, then I guess we'll just have to share with one another... Go to page 151, and I guess we're going to gather around in like little campfires and sing Kumbaya. If you can look on with a neighbor just for a little bit, that would be uh, really, really helpful. Uh, So page 151, uh, just that, that one page under the section, Kind Calling. And this is in a chapter where I am attempting to redefine... The word repentance. Okay? The word repentance. Now, the exercise works like this. You read these one, two, three and a half paragraphs, and all that you're looking for as the reader is just anything in that that strikes you, that interests you, that changes something of your way or thinking, that you find yourself with a, with a reaction like, huh, Or, hmm, any reaction at all, not the whole thing, just any detail or sentence in the midst of this. And in just a moment, you're going to tell your little friends there, your group, what the sentence was or the concept was that got you thinking, that changed something, that reminded you of a story in your own life. Just just virtually anything at all that got triggered by what you read. Okay, is that simple enough instructions? So you're not trying to get the right answer. Just look for something, and as soon as it triggers, hand your book to somebody else and give them a chance. If you want to just start reading in the third paragraph, it's okay with me. Just start reading and look for something that strikes you.
By the way, we have this book in Spanish too. It's been translated. So It's in the Dropbox now? Okay, there you go. Thank you very much, Christopher. And as soon as you're ready, you certainly may just talk to your friend about what what struck you. The whole point of this exercise is that you converse about what intrigued you, interested you, etc. We we don't have the resources that everybody needs, so it's a little uh, a little jerky right now, and some people are having trouble getting to the Dropbox. Uh, So I I think what I'm going to do is just back away from this exercise and not give you the next several that we were going to try to do. Um, But let let me say this. The dialogue that's going on as men and women in God, led by the Holy Spirit, share with each other is profoundly meaningful. And a great deal gets accomplished when we turn our people into more than just receivers and students, we turn them into ministers. And intuitively, we understand this. That's why when, you know, people are like last night, when a lot of people were up front here and they were, they were praying, I think some of us hesitated to go up and pray with and for them because nobody wanted to assume a place that wasn't theirs. And, but whereas in a church service... It would be nothing the pastor would have said, look, and please, some of you come and lay hands on. We believe that people in our church can minister, right? Right? The ministry of every believer. And all I'm trying to do is to bump that into the realm of teaching so that we really do get it that the lessons that we are learning in the life in God, the stories that we have, are a powerful resource to unleash in our training programs. And especially because adults like this interactive dialogue, the more that we can just stimulate conversation, get them going, with good boundaries, of course, for good doctrine, I think you'll discover that people will enjoy the experience more and they will learn more if they are sharing with with one another. And that's what I want to be true of their life in, in God. This book is designed that way. The curious quick story... Uh, I, I had given to a group of, uh, of the Pastora ladies in Colombia, Foursquare, one of the two Foursquare works we have in Colombia, and I won't explain that. 
Anyway, I just gave this book to them in Spanish and, you know, eh, see you later. Came back six months later and these women were like crying. They were so excited. And they said, Pastor, you have no idea what you've just done for us. I said, why, what? They said, what we know about church is church, big church, big music, big teaching. But we don't know much about how to just disciple our friends and our neighbors. And this tool that you've given us is enabling us. And they just had all these testimonies and stories. So I got really intrigued by this and arranged, thank you to the foundation, I got a foundation grant in in Colombia and in Peru to take this book and train just the ladies in uh, some of the leading ladies in these two countries who would then take what they received and train people in the local churches so that every single woman in the Foursquare churches in Peru and in Colombia received a copy of this book and they have started so many cell groups, so many stories are coming out of it because it unleashes the experience of people in God and gives them a safe way to approach it. So, I, I, I mean, I'm giving this book to you. If you find it would be of interest in your institute, um, you know, fantastic. You can contact us. But I will say this. Maybe you know of a complete baseline curriculum of, of, of full gospel doctrine in layman's language. I don't know of other. That's what this is. It's a, you look at this subject matter and I think you'll find it's a, it's a pretty, good, pretty good tool. Okay, I was going to draw you to other pages about the fullness of the spirit and spiritual gifts and things like that. But I think we don't have time to go there because of, uh, of what else I want to do with you. So I leave this with you and enjoy it as you're uh, flying home or whatever. And, oh, you probably need a contact. If you want to order any of these books or look at what else we have available, this is our website. Very simple. CTW, Charlie Thomas William, CTW dot coastlands.org and that will take you right to the CTW uh, resource uh, place and up until last month we gave away everything almost free (laughs) and well now our funding model has changed so we charge you exorbitant prices yeah and of course if you can't afford them all you have to do is let me know (laughs) and I'm (laughs) not my not my volunteers don't tell them they're merciless yeah contact me (laughs) All right. Um, <clears throat> wow. How, how are you feeling? Okay. Yes. Questions? Yeah, for the people here who didn't. <laughs> she wants my cell phone number so that you can all who didn't get one of these free. I have already stepped way out on a limb. I mean, way out on a limb. If you don't have one, and I would especially say if you're a part of a church that has no budget for resources or products, of course we'll get you one uh, free. My email is daniel at that place that I just gave you. Please don't be embarrassed. Tell me I really wanted one. You know, I'm sure it's really good. Put something like that in there, and that'll, that'll tip the scales and all. We'll, uh, we'll send you one. Okay. This is a a tumultuous 
age doctrinally. And yeah. do you mind if I just pray for a moment? I've got like seven directions that I could go, and I don't want to waste your time. But Lord, thank you for your kindness in leading us in your promises that we will hear a voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. And that's all that I want to do. I know that's all that we want to do. Lord, we want to, we want to grab a hold of whatever it is that you're putting in front of us. And so just would you superintend these minutes that we have here together, our energy level and so forth. Just help us as we move forward. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> the subject that I was asked to talk on, believe it or not, you're never going to get anything from me except discipleship stuff. Anyway, no matter what subject you give me, it's always going to default to discipleship. But the specific subject had to do with uh, how do we, in our institute program, how do we introduce the subject of spiritual gifts and what I call gift mixes or spiritual ministries? Because uh, you know as well as I do, Ephesians 4 tells us that there are a, uh, uh, you know, it gives us this list of the fivefold ministry of, a, of a apostle and prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and, and so forth. And you all are aware, right, that the word apostle is becoming our new A word. It used to be anointed. And we milked that puppy for all it was worth. Nobody really understood what it meant. And so now we've gone to another A word, and now everything is apostolic. Okay, whatever. I just always wonder, what's your Bible definition of apostolic? But the fivefold ministry is coming back pretty strong. Am I, am I, are, are you, you're kind of with me. Now, I will tell you this. All of these things are just cycles that get revisited every 20 or 30 years on the body of Christ. And where the fivefold ministry will head, give it another 10 years. It starts off fivefold ministry, very quickly shrinks down to two the apostle and the prophet, which very quickly shrinks even beyond that to the apostle. And in the beginning, if you want to join my network, of course, we celebrate all of these, but before long, it will just be me, the big A, telling you what to do in your church. Call me a skeptic. I've just seen this happen too many times before. Oh, and by the way, if we're going to do good Bible study and we talk about the fivefold ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, etc., what is it that they're supposed to do? What is their job description? What is their assignment? Ephesians 4. They're supposed to? Yes, they're supposed to equip the saints for, for ministry. So how do we measure the greatness, if we could use such a word, of any given apostle or any given prophet? Is it the amazing prophecies that they're able to give? Or is it that the people who study under them are equipped and tooled to understand how to prophesy themselves? Survey says, it's, yeah, it's always in the second generation. So how apostolic someone is, the most baseline definition that we have in the Word of God, how pastoral someone is, should be defined by what people under that woman or that man's ministry are now able to do that they were not able to do before. 
But because we have very much a star-studded mentality, a very Hollywood mentality about church, we cannot wait to make a new tribal chieftain out of somebody. And so we exalt and raise up these ministries, not because they are equipping a lot of people to do the ministry, but because they are doing most of the ministry for us. I believe that there are a great many gift mixes in the body of Christ. And I'm not trying to persuade you that you have to believe the same that I do. But I have a little... uh, you feel like a bedtime story? I mean, I, could really, I think I can really put you under with a little uh, part of a book that I've written on gift mixes to kind of give you a feel for the different sort of people that you have in your, in your church. And you know that if God has uh, given you, let's say, two people that you're discipling, and one of them is an exhorter, that's their gift mix, and the other is a teacher you know that they have very different reactions to almost everything. And if I'm going to train the exhorter how to do a good Bible study, I'm going to have to say to these people who always have a story about themselves, I'm going to have to tell them, look, you've got to get a Bible text, at least one for your your Bible study. Because otherwise it'll just be one story after another. But the teacher who has no life, Everything is just all this stuff. They've got a thousand scriptures for this little Bible study. You have to say to them, get a life and one example. Okay? If you don't know the difference between an exhorter and a teacher, you are not going to be able to equip them to fulfill their unique calling because that's what Ephesians goes on to say. It is the proper working of each individual part that causes the whole body to build itself up in love. And our danger as Christian educators is that we can be teaching a curriculum rather than teaching individual members of the body. And there's a difference between that. So do you have a good theology of the uniqueness of each person in the body of Christ? Do you know how a shower of mercy mostly manifests? And can you spot a giver in the midst of the, of the group? Does that make sense? The, the, we, Romans 12, you, you add all these together and you end up with some really interesting uh, different types of people. And I think very often in the church, the ear says to the eye, Whoa, that's beautiful. Did you hear that? And the eye says, what, what, what? And the ear says, it's right there. Just listen. And the eye's like, I, I, I don't hear anything. And the ear subtly imagines worthless eyeballs. Can't you do anything? And the eyes feel less than spiritual because they don't function like an ear functions. I would hasten to say, in most of our churches and training programs, Leaders, that term leaders, has been defined by a very narrow band of gift mixes. And so it makes the giver or the shower of mercy feel as though they're never going to be very spiritual because they don't function the way that somebody else functions. So I'm going to read you a little story of a tourist 
who gets lost on the streets of New York. And if you want to close your eyes while I'm reading this story and pretending that we're having nap time, uh, that would be really, really fine with me. Okay. So this tourist has become uh, separated from his group of friends who were taking in the city during an all-night flight layover between San Francisco and Zurich. And because the tall buildings block his view of the sun, he has no idea of direction, and the expression uptown and downtown offer him no hint of which way to go, even if he could discern the north from south. Good news for the tourist. Not far from where he stands is the storefront meeting place for a church being planted by a small group of believers. Several of those go-for-it saints are passing through the area on their way back from lunch, doing last-minute errands, hurrying back to their jobs, or taking power walks. Consequently, our tourist friend is about to meet these believers one at a time. Not surprisingly, the evangelist is first on the scene, not through any intentional planning, but because of the way the day worked out. Evangelists are somewhat oblivious to details of the day, but they do capitalize on whatever the day offers. I see you're lost, says the evangelist to the tourist. Yes, I am, he responds. Suddenly animated by opportunity, the evangelist inquires, but do you know how truly lost you are? Without waiting for an answer, he uses Broadway Boulevard to open conversation about the Broadway that leads to destruction and about the way, Jesus, who can take us to God. As that conversation ends, our tourist has much more to think about, but he's still at the same corner as physically lost as before. Soon thereafter, a prophet happens along because her mind is on other things. She almost bumps into the tourist. You know, prophets tend to be overly focused on a few things and unaware of most other things. Oh, oh, you're lost, aren't you? exclaims the prophet. You know, I don't normally take the street to the cleaners, but I just had a sense a few blocks back that I should turn down this street and praise the Lord, here you are. Feeling somewhat useful to the prophet, but not quite sure how or why being in need is so exciting to the spontaneously guided prophet, the tourist doesn't really know what to say or ask. Apparently, the prophet has found reason and confirmation for the changed walking route. Feeling glad to be needed, at least the tourist feels a personal bond with someone in the big city. As they stand there together, a teacher approaches them with purposeful strides, crossing over from the other side of the street. Without any preliminaries, he quizzes the tourist. Are you lost? Yes, of course you are. Happens all the time around here. Is that a map in your hand? Let's just take a look at it, shall we? Because tourists almost always find lessons to be learned in other people's circumstances. Instinctively adopting a pupil's willingness to be instructed, the tourist nods and holds up the rumpled map he has been clutching absentmindedly. When asked the name of the street he's on, the tourist looks at the nearby street sign and, and with the teacher's urging, finds himself repeating the name aloud. Now let's look for that name on the back of the map where they list street names and coordinates, the teacher continues. Before long, the teacher has become absorbed in the map and explanations of how the city was laid out last century. <laughs> Another member of the new church, who is, a, 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 who is obviously a close friend of the teacher, happens on the scene with another take on matters. I, for one, am not surprised that you're lost. You are lost, aren't you? <laughs> I thought so. Figures. 
When will the city learn? The tourist has some difficulty following the rest of the conversation because the leader champion seems to be alluding to a bigger problem of all tourists in New York and what the city ought to do to make itself more tourist-friendly. The leader champion is clearly an organized sort of get-it-done man who multitasks with ease. His zeal is contagious. The tourist almost expects the leader champion to pull out a petition. I'll sign, he finds himself thinking. And though he doesn't even live in New York, he feels compelled to join the cause, save the tourists. Because leader champions have an uncanny ability to mobilize recruits for a big cause or a big event. It isn't long before an exhorter, uh, conversing with someone he met two blocks earlier, calls out with a warm greeting to the tourist and his friends, seeming to continue the previous conversation with her latest new best friend. The exhorter keeps talking as though everyone has been listening to her for hours. Exhorters can talk and talk and talk, but no one minds when they do. Suddenly making discovery of a fresh, not-yet-discussed subject, she exclaims, Oh, you're lost? Simultaneously, with the tourist's affirmative reply, the exhorter continues aloud, It reminds me of the time that I was lost in Paris, or, or was it Naples? Anyway, I was so lost, I mean really lost. I met these folks who have a little place in upstate New York. What are the chances of that? We got talking about our experience in the snow, etc., etc., etc. Somewhat dazed, but strangely com comforted by knowing someone else has survived being lost in a big city, the tourist turns his attention to another man who has just joined the group. He has an air of unconventionality about him, as though he doesn't care much about the way things have been done before. He, too, makes the tourist feel comforted, not with stories about past survival, but with thoughts about a different future. Who says you're lost, asks the apostle. The way I see it, you're only lost if the people looking for you can't find you. Just start walking. That's the way to see a city. Don't bother with following a map, especially not those guided tour maps. Hey, I tell you what, I'll be your tour guide and we'll make our own tour of the city. Because apostle prophets seem to go their own way, excuse me, apostle pioneers seem to go their own way following the beat of a very different drummer. Fortunately, the tourist doesn't have to decide whether or not to follow the apostle pioneer because several other believers join the now growing group standing around on the sidewalk. The woman who seems to be leading these newcomers reminds the tourist of a mother hen keeping a watchful eye on all her friends. It would be too strong to say that she's herding her flock down the street, but she keeps the group together by speaking and paying attention to each of them alternately and by reminding them of their eventual destination. The pastor, for such she is, greets her newfound flock, including the tourist, warmly and reassuringly turning her attention to the tourist who instantly feels known and covered, she voices her concern. Oh my, you're lost. Whatever shall we do? Because pastors want to have everyone, uh, uh, want everyone to have and to feel things in common. One for all and all for one is their motto. Turning back to address the assembled group, she exhorts them to come a little closer and gather around the tourist. Let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Remember, Jesus told us to do to others as we would like them to do to 
us. The tourist who doesn't know the words to the song and isn't quite sure what he thinks about holding hands with strangers is relieved by a series of practical questions coming from one of the other new members of the sidewalk congregation. Is anybody hungry? Do you need a new map? Can I buy you a day pass? It's good on the subway and all the city buses. The giver, a man who doesn't necessarily look wealthy, is reaching for his wallet while asking the questions. The string of questions is secondary to his main interest, which is giving money. Givers like to play spiritual jeopardy, and the answer to the daily double is always give. The tourist is somewhat embarrassed by this generous eagerness to supply his needs, especially when he can tell that the giver is offering impulsively. Feeling almost selfish, by contrast, the tourist would have calculated the money in his wallet and compared it to the upcoming needs before making an offer of that sort. At ease with all of his new friends, the tourist almost replies in jest, I could use a new overcoat, but believes that his new friend would actually try to get one for him. The tourist's attention quickly shifts away from himself and his needs to one of the others who joined the group along with the pastor and the giver. Funny how he didn't see her before. She just seems to blend in with her surroundings, even though now as the tourist really looks at her, he can see she is quite attractive in a quiet sort of way. The tourist watches for a few minutes as the server helper arranges things, straightening a nearby group of trash cans, riding a toppled bike that has been chained to a light pole, and assisting various members of the group with various needs. She does things that the tourist would never think to do. It's as though she's being coached by someone unseen to know exactly what little things will make a big difference for others. Server helpers know and do what needs doing to maximize benefit to others. She reminds the tourist of an old movie whose main character can do things in warp speed without others noticing, almost as though everyone else stands still in time, attending to things without most of the group being aware that she is even there, the server helper lives almost in her own world and she obliviously derives excuse me she obviously derives deep satisfaction out of the limelight going about her own business. After another moment or two of watching her, the tourist becomes aware that another of the newcomers is focused intently on him, not with scrutinizing curiosity and certainly not in judgment, quite the opposite. And though he couldn't explain why he feels this way, the tourist feels totally accepted and embraced by the man's eyes. The mercy shower, an obviously gentle and kind man, approaches and holds out his hand to shake with the tourist. His grip conveys warmth but definite strength. I'll bet it takes a lot to make this man angry, thinks the tourist, but if he did get mad, I want him, wouldn't want him to be mad at me. The tourist feels understood instantly when the mercy shower whispers, you must be feeling a bit overwhelmed and a trifle dazed in such a big city with so many people. Whereas the exhorter used the tourist's experience as a launch point for his own story, the mercy shower remains silent, inviting the tourist to tell him everything about what has happened. Mercy showers are great listeners, but while they listen, they help others process their experiences. And though he's still on the same corner in New York City, not exactly sure what to do next, the tourist no longer feels uncomfortable or out of place.
realizing the lateness of the hour and knowing he must rendezvous with his tour group from California, the tourist declines an offer from the pastor to join them for an impromptu meeting in their new church building. It's time to say goodbye. What friends he has made. Being, founded by such a, being found by such a group of people is almost worth getting lost. He shakes hands with the giver and feels a $20 bill being pressed into his hand while they shake. The wink tells him to remain quiet and not protest, so he simply says, thanks for everything. The servant helper has somehow managed to neatly refold the tourist's map and place it in the backpack he helps adjust on the tourist's back. Wow, that feels much lighter, states the tourist. What did you do, fiddle with the straps? Uh, thanks. Already half a block down the street, the evangelist cries out, Remember, once you were lost and now you've been found. The tourist smiles as he witnesses the evangelist and who turns quickly to an unsuspecting bystander as if to answer the question, lost, that may or may not have been on the bystander's mind. An animated conversation ensues. The exhorter, speaking to anyone who might be listening, continues his string of stories. All this reminds me of a chance meeting several of my college buddies and I had. The tourist is sorry to miss the exhorter story that already sounds interesting. But he's also anxious to get back to his own buddies and the flight to Switzerland. Continuing the goodbyes, the tourist hugs the prophet who whispers in his ear, Remember, God knows right where you are at all times. <laughs> the apostle pioneer, still seeming a bit distracted by thoughts no one else is likely thinking, asks a farewell question that isn't really a question. Isn't this exciting? I love it when life throws us a curve. The teacher and leader champion do wave, but they are so absorbed in a discussion about today's incident and its meaning. The leader champion wants to know, what can we do about this? The teacher asks, what can we learn from this? The tourist smiles, thinking of how great it would be to have both of them on his planning committee in the office. The mercy shower and the pastor are the last two to turn away from the group. It's as though the mercy shower wants to lend his assuring presence for as long as possible until it's clear the tourist is ready to go for it on his own. And the poor pastor seems torn, almost tormented as her flock divides. She wants to keep everyone together on their way, fussing over and singling each one out for special attention. And she wants to linger with her newest charge until the tourist is clearly out of danger. I take the time to read that story to you uh, because an understanding of gift mixes and the uniqueness of each person, I think, is one of the most exciting subjects that you can offer to people in this day and age who are desperately selfish, who really, really want to know more about themselves and who have been raised in families where their parents either moved so often or left the scene so quickly that these people now growing up have no mirror into which they could look to find out who am I really. I think it's the key and the core question that our culture is asking. And what I'm just trying to suggest is that there is a lot in the Bible that talks about who people are. Jeremiah was told, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I called you forth as a prophet. 
And if we're going to teach the theology of a five-fold ministry and other gift mixes, it seems to me that we have to parcel those out a little bit and begin to explain them. If you don't have a theology of gift mixes, again, on our website, you can, there's a, a special discounted bundle called Spiritual Insight and Enablement. And there's quite a few hours that I've done uh, teaching on this subject of gift mixes. I'm not trying to advertise that. I'm just saying there are things in the kingdom to explore and truths that are gripping to other people. So in our passion to, and I'll say this to the national church, in our passion to develop a baseline curriculum, which I think is very, very important, and to have certain core competencies, I hope we send a huge signal at the same time to say that these things barely scratch the surface. And I don't want us to become, I don't want us to be endangered by taking a static and sometimes fairly boring objective curriculum and communicating to these men and women that give up their extra hours to come and learn that that's all there is in the kingdom. So maybe you find a way through the course of your institute that you are introducing some other subjects that I would say right now the church at large does not understand well. There's more to explore. That's all I'm trying to say. Okay, I know you're zoning out of here, but do you I mean do you understand this concept of different people are designed differently? Okay, good. If you haven't studied it much, I just beseech you, it's really, really vital. God names every single star. And to him, some stars are not dim and others bright. He calls them by name. And I would say to us as spiritual leaders, if we're not remembering people's names, and we beg off by saying, well, I'm not good at names. Well, he is. And is there any other area of our Christian life that we say, well, I'm just not good at the things God is good at? I don't think so. Because how you speak to them and what you present to them should be, I believe, informed by what part of the body is this person. Exercises that work really great for the biceps don't work well for the ears. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Do you have questions about anything that I've presented uh, today? I see that hand back there, and then we'll take one up. Is it the, will you put it in the mic, or is it a quick? How can you get a copy of Enjoying Your Journey? Well, so my email is just daniel at, then the address that I gave you, ctw.coastlands.org. And uh, I, I can't really just give these to everyone in the, in the church. So if you're leading an institute or you have a responsibility as a teacher, I'm giving it to you as an academic courtesy, as sort of an examination copy. Oh, the story. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I've only... Okay, I'm sorry. Um, I'm halfway through my next book. And that's this one. 
And the hard part is done, the theology of gift mixes. And then this is the story that springs into the chapters where each of the gift mixes will be talked about in, in detail. If you want the essence of the difference between them, go to our website. And the teaching is called uh, gift mixes. And you can either type that into the search or if you go under the bundle of resources gathered together, it's spiritual insight and enablement. And that will give you the, the essence of it. Uh, having said all that, if you email me and you just want the story, and I can write draft copy on it, and you promise me before God that you won't publish it before I do, <laughs> uh, then I'd be very happy to send it, send it to you. Yeah. Okay, next question. Okay, thank you. Thank you for asking. The question is, in my material, is there any sort of test or assessment to define the different gift mixes? Okay, I'm going to say this gingerly. I'm going to say it carefully, but I am going to say it. I am not a fan of the gift assessment tools. I believe the very best way to discover who and what you are is to engage in service. And the more that you are serving in conjunction with other people, they will be able to spot what you are before you do. And it's much more powerful uh, to have them do it. So, in fact, I've been turned down by uh, two publishers because they don't want this without an assessment. And so it's kind of my doctrinal dilemma. I, I'm not convinced that an assessment will, will come up with this. And I'm a real Bible-only guy, so the spiritual gifts and gift mixes that I list are only the ones that I find listed. And many of those inventories, I just think they're flexible with their definitions. And they're helpful to people, so hallelujah. Please don't hear me say you should never use them. It's just not my bent. So that's why the answer is no. There is no assessment tool. Uh, anything else? Okay. Well, in conclusion, if you don't mind, I can't resist one last little commercial for my latest book that just came out days ago. It's entitled Embracing Grace. And the subtitle is Settling the Guilt That Unsettles You. I promise you this, this will blow your mind. We do not understand grace very well. The only non-Bible quote that I use in this book is by Oliver Wendell Holmes, who says, in so many words, I wouldn't give a wit for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my whole life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And I think why the church is, is battling uh, this crazy license heresies that are floating around out there and the crazy legalism that's floating around out there is because we are not careful in our Bible study and we only remember cliches and partial scriptures. So what I do is I go back, it tells a story. It's all a story. You'll love that because my wife won't leave a movie no matter how bad it is if it's based on a true story. I know nobody finishes Christian books, so how can I trick them? 
ah, I'll tell a story. So it's very easy reading, but very deep theology. Do you want one quick, for instance, how am I doing time-wise? Okay, okay. Faith without works is dead, right? We quote that puppy all the time. Hmm. But we don't realize that there are two laws. There's the law of faith, the law of belief, the law of Christ on the one hand, and the law of Moses, the law of obedience, the law of commands on the other. And when we quote, faith without works is dead, even though we don't come right out and say it, what we really are implying is, okay, faith may be. But without a, 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 at least a modicum of morality going along with it, if you don't match your faith with better behavior, that faith can't save you. What is wrong with this? Let's look at the two examples that they give us of faith and works. The first is Abraham. You know his story. He was a man prepared to commit infanticide. And I don't think there's any culture in the world that celebrates infanticide. I'm being ridiculous now, but what? You've killed two of your kids? You should run for mayor. There's no way that you can claim that what he was willing to do with his son is an act of morality or obedience to the law of Moses. It was a work of faith because he believed that God had promised to bless all of his descendants. And even though this one son looked like it was the answer, he was the answer, Moses chooses to believe God and stand only on the promise, not on the work of the law. My favorite is Rahab. This will be quick. Rahab, the harlot. You'd think the poor girl, after all these centuries, they'd leave her alone and put in her last name. Oh, no, it's the whore, it's the harlot, it's the madame, you know, Rahab, Rahab. <laughs> what was her work of faith? She tied a scarlet cord around the window because she believed the promise that was spoken to her. If you tie this cord and stay in your house, we won't kill you and you can join our, our, our nation. You step out of this house and you're dead. So she ties her scarlet cord. Now, just speculate for a moment. I figure it was two days for the spies to get back to the camp. And two days to get back with all of Israel. Six days to march around the city. I add up ten days. So what's your thought? Do you think that Rahab took the rest of the scarlet cord and draped it across her front door with a sign that says, Close for business, you perverts. Or do you think she hired on some extra help? I'm just saying the tension in the city was probably pretty heightened. And I can't prove that she expanded her business, but there's no suggestion in Scripture that she closed it. And by the way, do you love the story of Ruth and... Boaz, and where you go, I will go, and all that stuff. Never mind that it was a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law, but it makes for a beautiful wedding service. Oh, you're my people. You, you love all that? I mean, it's so beautiful. Boaz, you know, you can glean in my fields. Yes, here's my coat that I'll put over you. Oh, beautiful. Uh, where do you think Bo got all the money? Would it shock you to discover that he is none other than the harlot's boy? Okay, okay, probably. She didn't really work that much, 
And she probably was out of actual work herself. She was more a manager, I'm sure, I'm sure. And, uh, but not a very big business, but she's really good in investments. And so she took her pitiful little shilling or whatever that she made from her activity and uh, invested it in the stock market and became a millionaire and passed those monies on to her boy who could buy the very land. And we're so excited about in the story. My point is, faith without a work of faith that acts on a promise rather than a command has no power ultimately to save. But I tell you, your people are being pummeled by the spirit of the Pharisee. And in our nation, it is the other gospel that's getting preached far too much, not the true gospel. The other gospel says, be good. The true gospel says, be forgiven. So this is a book of one Bible study after another that will blow your mind. Uh, My pastor, Pastor Jack, said to me privately, he said, I believe this is going to be the litmus test book on grace in our generation. He says, eh, probably not actually, because you tell a story and it's too interesting and the theologians probably won't appreciate it. On that happy note, I'm going to turn it over to our theologians. Joe, thank you very much. Oh, by the way, this book is available. I have some copies back there, and I think we're going to just sell it for an even 10 because I don't have any. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel.